Bill's Nelly. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 456. Jason Lingren is with me and Dr. Graves returns. You may remember Dr. Graves from episodes 389, 364, and 342. Additionally, those little images of services that I have vetted and have found useful, there's a little yellow image that links to Dr. Graves' law course. It says, no lawyer, no problem. There's books. It's a little yellow image. I have received nothing but positive emails and people telling me things like, I feel like I can take care of myself. I didn't know what I didn't know, things like this. So the course has been a hit. What we're going to cover today, basically, and I'm sure Dr. Graves will take it where he thinks it needs to go, is the rules of evidence and objections, how they relate to each other, and the idea of taking control over the judge in the courtroom. Jason, welcome. And a beautiful good day. Let's jump in. This is a lot to wrap your mind around, at least it is for me. I haven't paid attention to this as much as I would like to because of the number of shows you and I have to produce, but let's get into it. Welcome back, Dr. Graves. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure. I've had so much positive feedback from the course that you provide, um, which is why we linked to it in the first place. But where would you like to jump in? Do you want to follow the bullet points or do you want to freelance this? Well, I, I think I want to, <laughs> I, I think freelancing would be good because I think that what I want to share today is something we have not talked about before. And that is how courtroom objections enforce the rules of evidence and thereby control the judge. And that's kind of powerful, I, I think. I like to think that's pretty powerful. So if you know how and when and why to object, which we can talk about uh, and try to get right to the point, so it, keep it really simple, that's the whole point. If it's easy enough for an eighth grader to understand, then it's easy enough for everybody to understand. But there are really six categories for the rules of evidence. And then there are these things called objections that makes the judge, or should, if the judge is doing his job, should make the judge stop in his tracks and deal with your objection. Okay, well, I've got a question to begin, and then I guess I'm going to suggest that we go through um, the rules of evidence. How much latitude does it, when someone makes an objection in a live courtroom, how much latitude does the judge have? Are you suggesting that there are rules in place that if this happens, then this other thing must happen, limiting the basically latitude of a judge to make any decision he wants? If the objecting party makes the proper allegations with regard to the objection, just saying objection doesn't get the job done. That's what you see on television. Objection and then that's not reality. But if you say objection, hearsay, objection, ask and answer, objection, attorneys badgering the witness, these things, when, when that is done, the, the rules require that the judge deal with your objection, over either overrule your objection, in which case you want to renew your objection right away, or sustain your objection, in which case what the, your opponent was trying to do he can't get away with anymore because basically he's been ordered to stop. And we can give examples, but it just seems to me if we can help people to not only have a key to the courthouse, first we have to have a key to the courthouse, but once we get in the court, begin to understand the simplicity of how this game is played, this game called litigation, and how objections 
create a record that the appellate court then can look at and overrule that trial judge or send the case back to the trial judge with instructions to do things the way he should have done in the first place. So does it make sense here to lay down what the rules of evidence are to refresh people's memories? Certainly. (laughs) Actually, the more that I've taught this course, the, the easier all of this becomes for me and for my students. There are two R's, two C's, and two P's. And that pretty much covers the rules of evidence. And we could go over those uh, right now if you'd like me to. Sure, let's do it. Two R's, two C's, two P's. Right. So the first R is probably the most important and the most common, and that is relevance. You may have heard that on television, not, not very often because the actors just, they just say, and they don't know what they're doing, half of them. But relevance is a filter. Evidence rules are nothing but filters. They filter out stuff shouldn't be coming into the record, and they allow stuff that should come into the record. And relevant things are things that could affect the outcome of the case. Uh, I can give an example I've given before. I had a case down in Palm Beach County uh, where the other side was trying their best to, to show and get into evidence that my client had been in a fistfight in a restaurant. They weren't concerned that somebody else started the fight, but he, he, you know, he defended himself. And they tried and tried to get that into evidence, but it had nothing to do with the fact that the case was about how their client had finagled to steal $4.3 million worth of business. So stealing the business, nothing to do with that. The fact that my client was in a fist fight doesn't mean that Oh, he was in a fist fight, so so we get to steal his business. It's ridiculous. So it was not relevant to the outcome. And so the objection relevance persuaded the judge to finally tell these aggressive lawyers on the other side, you know, give it up. It's not coming in. We're not going to let the jury know about his fist fight because it shouldn't be in. It doesn't have anything to do with, with the issue that's before the court. Any questions about relevance? No, that seems pretty straightforward. So there's another R, I presume. There is. There's one called reliable to do with really the the source of the information. Where'd the information come from? Uh, is it something that reasonable people would believe? If somebody says, you know, flying saucer land in my yard, and, and that's why the paint fell off my house or whatever the case is all about. Well, objection, unreliable. And, and that objection should be sustained if what's being introduced is unreliable, outlandish, ridiculously, off the wall, those types of things. They don't have any place in court. Court's a serious place where we want serious things to get done, so we try to keep out the stupid, silly things, and that's what the second R is. Does that make sense? Yeah, but I've got to ask, would, would the reliability also uh, be attached to like the source of the information? If a person is deemed not you know, forthright, not an upstanding individual, does that make anything that would come from him unreliable? It does indeed. It does indeed. Suppose at the time that he is, that the witness is talking about that he was falling off his bar stool. That testimony is not going to be reliable because he was, you know, influenced by whatever it was that made him fall off the bar stool. So anything that would make the offered evidence unreliable 
then we apply this filter and we apply it again by objecting. And, and when we object, the judge is supposed to stop everything. Don't, don't let it come in. Don't let that evidence come in until we decide whether or not it's reliable. If the judge sustains the objection, stays out. They don't need to muddy the water with foolishness. If the objection is overruled, then we need to renew our objection so the appellate court will see that we gave the judge every opportunity to do the right thing. But basically, these rules are filters, and they say this is these things can come in, these things cannot come in, but the evidence rules don't enforce themselves. We enforce the evidence rules with objections. How are we doing? Jason, did I sense that you were going to come in there? Well, to use your extreme example of a flying saucer, when someone makes that objection, can the uh, other side provide evidence to say, oh, but I can prove there was a flying saucer? Well, certainly. And we'll allow them to do that. But if the evidence that they have to prove there was a flying saucer is that some little green man told him that, you know, I came from Mars, again, we're going to continue to object because sooner or later it'll go up on appeal. If we don't win, we'll go up on appeal and three appellate justices then will read the record and make a decision as to whether or not it was reliable or was it just off the wall. Does that help? Yeah, that's pretty crystal clear. So I'm trying to bang this into my head as we go along. Um, So I'm just going to reiterate. These are the rules of evidence. We've done the two R's. Those two R's are relevance and reliable or reliability. And now we're going to do the two C's. Go ahead, doctor. Okay. The first C is competence. And here's where we get to object when when a, a lawyer tries to testify. The lawyer can't find a witness to say what he wants the witness to say, to say what he wants to get into the record. So he tries to say, well, you know, Mr. So-and-so was driving 75 miles an hour. Objection, Your Honor. Counsel's testifying. He, he is not competent. He, he does not have firsthand knowledge of how fast a car was going or, or how many pills Dr. So-and-so gave the, the patient. No, he needs to shut up now, and the judge should sustain that objection. If the judge does not sustain, but he overrules, we renew the objection, because now we're not talking to the judge. We are talking on the record to those three tribunal justices at the appellate court, who eventually will see the record if we don't win, where we're showing that appellate court that this judge is completely off the wall. And he should have sustained my objection. He didn't. Therefore, if I lose because of that, then I've made my record and I renewed my objection. So when you renew an objection, you're basically ensuring that it's written into the transcript of the court proceeding. Well, that's the reason that's the reason for the first objection is also to make the record and to stop the judge. The second renewing the objection is it's sort of two things. One it gives the judge another chance. It's like, well, okay, you messed up then, but I'll give you one more chance, Your Honor. You one more chance to sustain my objection. Maybe you need to stop a minute, pay attention to me instead of reading that comic book. Does that make sense? 
a little bit, but it sounded as you were describing what it means to be competent or not competent. The idea of hearsay, uh, not having firsthand knowledge made someone incompetent. Is that correct? Well, yes. Hearsay does hang on this scene. Hearsay definitely hangs on that. The witness isn't here. If we're going to talk about what someone said somewhere down the road, they were, they were at the scene. Uh, they're not here. I can't cross-examine them. So what the witness is saying or trying to say or what the lawyer wants the witness to say, there's no firsthand knowledge. And not only that, but the witness has to be sane, sober, and of age, or, or the testimony is not competent, and it should not be allowed into the court record. Okay, that's pretty clear. Um, Dr. Graves, what is the second C in the rules of evidence? Credibility. The testimony must be believable. And I think on our, our first interview with you wonderful people, we talked about the fact that apples do not fall up. And uh, it, this kind of comes back a little bit. Reliability and credibility are interrelated. People are not abducted by aliens. So it has to be believable by, and, and here's something that, that we like folks to understand. There's a, called, there's a thing called the reasonable standard, the reasonable man or the reasonable woman, a reasonable person, would have to find this believable. And if it's not believable, then it's not credible. And that's one of the filters, is credibility. So when something is presented, then we hear something that's incredible, not believable by reasonable people, we object immediately. And if the judge sustains our objection, then we're moving forward and we're headed towards in our case. So would precedents play into credibility, something that people are questioning, is this credible? And someone points out, well, there's precedents for this. Would that make it credible? Well, it could. It could, or, or it might not. It depends on what, what the so-called precedents would be. Have other reasonable people believed that it was true? Are, are there books out there about this where people with degrees who have written books, people that are reputable, people with reputable minds, they, they believe it's, it's credible, well, then they, we get into that argument. But we're not going to allow the witness to testify, or we're not going to allow the document to be admitted into the record until we make this decision. And, and that, I want to emphasize that for people so that they see this really is all common sense, that we're going to decide that before we allow it to be part of the record that an appellate court would see. We don't ever. We don't want the appellate court to ever be bothered with this foolishness, and we certainly don't want you know six people who are our peers sitting in the jury box who, who may have an average IQ of average IQ having to try to noodle all this out and have all this stuff come in that's going to just confuse everybody and mislead everybody and and uh, pollute the record. It becomes a dog and pony show. We're not going to put up with that. It's too serious a business. People are deserve justice. And part of how we get justice is to understand there are rules of evidence, and there are these things called rules. How are we doing? Your mic is cutting out a little bit. Are you in front of a mic, or are you wearing your mic? No, right here in front of it. All right. It just cut for a second. But as I'm trying to piece together what you've done here, it occurs to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, when you see an expert witness brought in, they're pretty much checking the boxes reliable, competent, credible, I guess relevance would be determined. But, uh, you know, when you get Dr. So-and-so, who's the lead medical expert at this, is that what they're up about? They're trying to be reliable, competent, and credible on the same stroke? 
Well, the interesting thing about an expert witness is they're not supposed to testify about the facts of the case in the first place. They are supposed to testify about hypotheticals. In other words, instead of saying, well, did Mr. Jones fire the weapon? He's not allowed to answer that unless you allow it. If you if you if you're brain dead and you allow it, then it well, he couldn't know, in. right? So what you're he saying could, is he couldn't know, so he needs to generalize. But see, what he could do is he could say that a 357 pistol could not have sufficient force at 300 yards to cause the injury alleged, or something of that nature. You see, but he he can do that, but he he can't go beyond that and testify to actual facts. He is there to tell us things such as, at what stage does appendicitis become operable? Something like that. Not whether or not the doctor operated properly or whether the doctor operated at the proper time or did what needed to be done, but basically things about that particular process, the appendectomy. And he can talk about that, but he can't talk about the actual surgery He's only there to talk about how things are supposed to fit together from a hypothetical point of view. Does that make any sense? I'm trying my best. Yeah, of course. So we're two-thirds of the way through the rules of evidence. To recap, there are two R's, two C's, and two P's. We've done the two R's, relevance and reliability. We've done the two C's, competence and credibility. And Dr. Graves is going to jump in on the two P's here. (laughs) Okay. Another one is prejudice. Prejudice is something that would that would inflame the jury, would shock the jury, that it would confuse the jury or mislead the jury or waste time. So we say that that information is prejudicial. And we can introduce a word that isn't too hard to, to understand. It's called probative. So for the people out there, something is probative, P-R-O-B-A-T-I-V-E, probative if it tends to prove something. So the probative value of a piece of evidence is the degree to which it tends to prove something. But that probative value must not be outweighed this potential to shock, confuse, mislead, or waste time. An example is this. You have a case where a young child got run over by an automobile. And the leg is just terribly mangled and it's twisted and the bones are all broken. There's photographs from the scene. Well, we don't need those photographs to decide whether or not the defendant ran over the child. We could have doctors come in and testify as to the injury. But to show the jury that bloody mangled leg, that has a greater potential to shock than the value to prove anything because we don't need to prove that it happened, it's outweighed. So we, we say objection, prejudicial. And again, the court is supposed to stop then and there. Don't let this evidence come in until, until we decide whether or not the judge is going to sustain that objection or overrule it. And if it's overruled, we say, I renew my objection on prejudice. And now, the, now the, it's in the record. And now when it gets up to the appellate court, the appellate court will see that we gave the judge every opportunity to cure the problem. And the judge, the high-minded perhaps judge who thinks he's smarter than God, decided he was not going to allow us to, to enforce the rule. So now if all goes well, the appellate court will then teach that judge a lesson. So 
in, in a way, it's a bit like trying to prevent someone from adding shock value or a better way than shock value would be trying to interject an emotional side that trumps the fact because everybody knows emotion will trump almost everything. So it's a way to try to keep the emotional hyperbole out of it. That's very well said, sir. Very well said. Exactly. Okay. So we're on to the last of the six and the second P. Well, most people already know about this. It's pretty much common knowledge that, uh, you know, if, if, if your spouse has a conversation with you about where she hid the cocaine, and if, if you're on the stand and the lawyer says, well, what did your wife say to you about where she hid the cocaine? Ah, uh-uh, no way. Uh-uh, I'm not going to tell you. Not, <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Go to Canada where they don't have this rule. They don't have this rule in Canada. I actually had that happen. I had an RCMP, Royal Canadian Mounted Police Attorney, came down from Canada, from Ottawa to Orlando to interview my client, who was the wife of a very, 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 very wealthy man and who owned a hotel and a building, all kinds of stuff. And they tried and tried to get her tripped up. And I had told her before, this is going to this thing about privilege. So hopefully it's helping people to understand. It's, it's all rocket science. I really, it's not rocket science, rather. So they would ask questions about, well, you know, how do you like Florida? They had a home in Florida and all kinds of just casual things. I had one, I had one lawyer try to get into a grandma's recipe for cookies to do anything on earth to get you off and then ask a question that was going to require her to tell on the record now at the deposition what her husband said about where he kept the money or things like that. Objection, privileged. And this attorney, she just turned blue. She started drumming her pencil on the table. She was really having a hard time trying to intimidate me, which is kind of hard to do. And she said, well, we don't have that rule in Canada. And I said, well, you're in Orlando. This is, this is Mickey Mouse world. You can't make someone testify as to what the spouse said to them in confidence. So we also have the doctor-patient. So if you go to your doctor, and of course, now, if, if you commit a crime, this rule disappears as far as the doctor-patient goes. Not the husband-wife, the doctor-patient or the attorney-client privilege. And there are other privileges depending on what state you live in. There's sexual counselors and all those kinds of different things. But but you have to check in your state, make sure which is which. But these privileges, again, are filters. And they exist to keep things out that really shouldn't come in to the record. It's not fair. And fairness is part of the goal here. And we can have fairness if we learn how, when, and why to object on these, on these rules. So that's what privilege is. So we have two P's, two C's, two R's. And of course, we can dig into that and, and really, really, really get deep and find out what appellate courts have said about relevance, what they've said about reliability, what they've said about these things. But those are basically the filters that are the rules of evidence. And we enforce those filters by making objections in a timely manner. Of course, you know, if, if the lawyer on the other side asks the witness, well, what, what did Dr. So-and-so say? And you're not on your toes and you don't object before the evidence comes in. It's in. You can move to strike it, but the jury heard it. And we see that on television all the time. 
What's interesting is a typical internet search will give you the following returns on the word privileged, enjoying a privilege or having privileges, entertaining or carrying certain privileges. But the third one relates to what you're laying down, protected by a legally recognized right against disclosure. Right. (laughs) And here we are with that word right. And we all have rights. And too few of, of we people in the American public know how to enforce our rights. And I just keep appreciating you folks for helping me to reach people to understand that it's not hard to learn how to enforce your rights. You learn the rules of evidence, you learn objections, and really the the only other major part of this whole education has to do with understanding what elements are. And elements, I can explain that in two or three sentences, the elements are simply those facts that support the arguments of the parties. Nothing else matters. You know, well, so-and-so wore a red hat that day. Well, if, if wearing a red hat doesn't have anything to do with it, then it's not an element. But the existence of a contract, that would be an element. The existence of damages to someone's person, that would be an element. But these other things, once we focus on, what do I have to prove to win? Can I just go there real quickly? Yeah, just let me recap real quick. So we've covered the six rules of evidence. And the reason I'm doing this is I'm banging it into my own head as I'm trying to bang it into yours, these foundational ideas. There are two R's, two C's, two P's. The R's are relevance and reliability. The C's are competence and credibility. The P's are prejudice and privilege. Go ahead, Dr. Graves. Okay. The idea of all of this was, of course, this all started with Moses way back when, when he decided we're going to have judges that are going to help people to stand up against people with swords and guns. And well, they didn't have guns, but swords and spears and things. So we have this place that we can go where we make allegations. So there, there are three people that make allegations. Let's take the prosecutor in a criminal case. He alleges that a crime took place. First thing we want to do is find out, well, what are the elements, the essential fact elements? I should say it that way. No, I shouldn't just say elements. I I should say, what are the essential fact elements of the crime? In other words, you've been accused of murder. Where's the body? Is anybody dead? You can allege that there's a murder, but you're going to have to prove that essential element. Somebody's dead. (laughs) Now, then you're going to have to prove that the death resulted from the act of the defendant. That's an essential element. And then if you want to call it first-degree murder, then you have to show that not only was the death caused by the defendant, but the defendant intended. So the intent becomes an essential element. That's how it works with a prosecutor on a crime. Not too difficult to understand. Sooner or later, I'll get this in the schools, God willing. So let's take a situation of a a plaintiff in a case. Say it's a breach of contract case. The plaintiff has to allege the essential fact elements that will establish that a breach of contract took place. He can't just go in and say, so-and-so breached my contract. Give me my money. (laughs) I won't get anywhere. So what we do is we say, all right, Jones and Smith entered into an agreement on May the 2nd. 2022. Copy thereof is attached. 
the defendant breached the agreement by failing to paint the house that he promised to paint. The plaintiff paid the defendant money and the defendant has suffered damages. Those are the essential elements. Now, the thing that I find amazing is that in 36 years, I never met a lawyer who understood what what I will now tell you about the defendant having essential fact elements. Defendants have the ability to file something called affirmative defenses. Estoppel is one. Latches is one. Uh, Failure of consideration is one. But each of these affirmative defenses are like causes of action or even crimes in that they have essential fact elements. So that if you prove the essential fact elements for, for example, failure of consideration, the defendant in that case on the painting the house just a moment ago, if he could show, I never got paid, where's the cancel check? Prove you paid me. If he makes that allegation with that affirmative offense, which is failure of consideration, which other lawyers, they just, they just say, they just list them. They'll just say, Failure of consideration, estoppel, latches, some other things, statute of limitations, and they never state the essential fact elements. But my students have they have the advantage of stating the essential fact elements for their affirmative defenses. Now all they have to do is to prove those essential fact elements by the greater weight of the evidence, and bingo, the case is over, they win. It's, it's so simple when you see it this way, it takes a little bit of thinking to wrap your head around it, but you're not wrapping your head around differential calculus. You're wrapping your head around a almost a mechanical function that the court can be forced to follow. Of course, today, many courts with the, the lack of legal education in our, in our law schools, most of the lawyers I've met, they don't get it. They know how to cash their clients' checks. But an awful lot of them don't have a clue what they're doing. I, I Even some of the Supreme Court justices on the Florida Supreme Court, I had to appear before, and I don't think they were all wired up real tight. So we're hoping that we can get people to realize that once you understand these six filters, and once you understand how to make objections, and then only adding this other element to the basic thing to understand what litigation is all about, is what are the essential fact elements I have to prove to win or to prove that the prosecutor cannot prove? Like We can do that the other way. But it's always based on the essential fact elements of the case that have to be proven for that person to win the case. And we prove it with evidence. And we control evidence with the rules of evidence and properly made, timely made, objections that are made and if overruled are renewed. That's the whole course in a nutshell. So this is kind of a sidestep, but it's not because I think it it relates to fact elements or the elements of, of a crime. Used to drive me crazy on television. You see all the TV murder cases, right? And over and over, how many times has everyone seen oh, we killed someone. If we get rid of the body so it could never be found, we can't be charged with murder. Oh, we killed someone. If we take the murder weapon and destroy it or make it, throw it in the ocean so it can never be found, we can't be charged with murder. Is that a similar idea? 
And by the way, is it true? Is it true that if a criminal wanted to know the basics, they could prevent themselves from getting charged for something like murder if they just knew to get rid of the body or knew to get rid of a weapon? Well, are you sleeping with the fishes? <laughs> exactly. There it is. Don't give it a name, Benny. Is there any reality to these things? The reason I ask is because it's crazy to me that that might be true because it means anyone committing a crime could, with a basic education could get away with murder or to flip that over, anyone who watches enough TV. <laughs> it happens all the time. People disappear. Where'd they go? Let me just go philosophical on here, if I may, for just a moment. I'll, I'll be Archimedes or one of those people for just a moment. We deserve a system of justice that obeys rules. I mean, if our system of justice is just going to be at the whim of people in black robes, then what kind of justice is that? Or, or if justice is supposed to bow down to exigence and the demands of the times or, or the persuasive power of public discourse, that's not justice. The system is supposed, and we need to restore this. There are a lot of people out there that are working very, I was on the phone last night for a man for an hour. Who's, his whole thing is we've got to restore justice and we've got to call down these people in high places that are telling us what justice is and bring them back to the reality of what justice really ought to be and can be and should be once again. So the point is, if a crime alleges that somebody killed somebody, then an essential element is somebody's dead. And to prove somebody is dead, it takes more than he didn't show up for supper. We can't have that kind of slipshod concept operating in our court system. If we want to be a civilized society and, and have advantages for the, the working class who otherwise are going to be thrown under the bus every time you turn around, it, it, we've, we've got to make a difference We've got to stand up for what's right and wrong. And I think the coolest place to end up for what's right and wrong is in the courthouse, where we actually can control these people in high places. I have found over the years, most of the judges I appeared in front of were honorable people. They wanted what was best, but I had to instruct them. I had to tell them, no, no, we're not going to do it that way. I've actually said that to judges. Excuse me, no, sir, we're not going to do that. But other lawyers won't do that because other lawyers are afraid of the judge or think that they're going to make more money if they can just get on the good side and do all that. And their clients aren't smart enough to know what the judge, what the lawyer should have done. But that is what we need. And that's what I keep trying to promote. And I so appreciate you fellas for, and Rose for helping me to have an opportunity to try to lift this lamp for the American public to understand this is your power. If you don't like what's going on in the country and you want, the law isn't what you want it to be, change it. But you don't change it by setting fire to police cars. You change it by going to court like Rosa Parks did and like Mr. Miranda. And the law changes when people go to court. We don't have DDT in our food anymore. Somebody went to court. And all these things that are somewhat making the world a better place for all of us, a lot of that comes from somebody going to court, understanding the rules of evidence, making sure that the crooked lawyers don't muddy the works, and we're making the world a better place. I think that that should not just be the purview of people that went to, to, to law school like I did and passed the bar. I think it's something that an eighth grader can learn. And, and God willing, give me the time and, and finances, I, I will get this into the schools. It's not rocket science. You know, 
I think a lot of people out there have the perception that when you walk into a courtroom, the judge is like God. And this is what I've noticed. Jason and I have done so many episodes to show how social programming works. And I had not been on Netflix in a long, long time. The other day I scanned through and what I realized was, I don't know, a full third of all the movies I saw listed were post-apocalyptic America. The ones that weren't that were very <laughs> low-minded, people making fart jokes. And it occurs to me that that relates to what you're saying, because what you're saying is the judge is not God. Maybe he's a little more like a referee, and the rules have to be underscored occasionally. The rules are already in place to ensure the judge is not God. But what's happened is the people have been programmed to be so dim-witted and so convinced that only a so-called expert could possibly survive in a courtroom that the courtrooms simply aren't really being used. And when they are, someone's hiring a lawyer. And what goes on there a lot is someone's going to cash some checks and they're really not that invested. But do you agree with that? Really, there's a perception that judge is God. He's not God. He's maybe more like a referee. Crow, I don't know how I could agree with you more. I, I think of him as an umpire. I think about baseball. That's his job. He's not supposed to bend the rules. But the thing that I want people to understand is you can control these people. They have to obey the rules because there's three other people that, like like down in Florida where I was practicing in, in, in Stewart, which is in Martin County, which is part of the Court of Appeal, the appellate court sits in Palm Beach. So I'd be before a, a judge in Okeechobee County or Martin County or in Palm Beach County and that judge, I didn't have any problem at all reminding that judge, sir, the Fourth District Court of Appeal will hear this. If you don't want to do what the rules require, I'll be happy to take it up on appeal. And then the Fourth District Court of Appeal will instruct you how to behave in the future. And you're 100% right. They're there just to be an umpire. They're not God. They're not there to do those things. They're supposed to enforce the rules if you first know these simple rules. Six, six letters, that's not too hard, and dig into it, get in a little deeper, and then when, how, and why to object and state the grounds for the objection. And I have found over the years that judges really want you to help them to control this jerk over here who did graduate from law school, who's wearing a pair of $500 shoes and $75 silk necktie, I don't, I don't know how much neckties cost these days, who is just trying to bamboozle everybody and get away with it. And he's not supposed to intervene and tell you, uh, excuse me, Mr. Graves, this lawyer over here is trying to pull a wool over you. He's not supposed to do that. So once we understand these simple rules and simple objections and that the essential fact elements have to be proven, the rest really does fall into place, and that is the entire structure of litigation, whether it's a criminal case or a civil case. It doesn't matter. And you're exactly right, and you hit the nail right on the head, Crow. That guy's supposed to be a referee to enforce the rules, just like on a soccer game. But you're the one that has to throw the flag. He won't throw the flag. You have to throw the flag. Well, it occurs to me, the perception, you know, it's like we I did an episode pointing out that a story is one of the most powerful things in the world, and it relates to what we're talking about, because I truly do suspect that most people out there who have been watching entertainment have the impression that a judge is a god. And when you make the 
comparison to an umpire or a referee, think of what that means. If an umpire or referee makes bad calls on the field, everybody watching sees it. Uh, You're not going to do that for very long and get away with it as an umpire. But in the way you're laying it out, you've told us, renew your objection. That way, when it goes up to a court of appeals or appellate court, that guy might get his butt handed to him if he wasn't following the rules correctly. So really, the perception of a judge should not be that they're the God of the court. The perception of a judge should be that there are these rules in place that were put together a long time ago, and that man or woman is supposed to simply referee what's going on. And if you apply what you're, what you're laying down here, it's in the record if you think they do something wrong. And if they do something wrong, you can continue to use the system to go to a court of appeals or whatever might be next. Is that all right? It's 100%. 100%. Exactly. And the thing that we want to, the only, the only alteration I would make to that is, as I said a moment ago, this particular referee with the black robe, he won't throw the flag. You throw the flag when you say, objection, your honor, hearsay, objection, counsel's testifying. And then, then he has to rule. He doesn't throw the flag. He's not supposed to throw the flag. He's not supposed to get involved. He's not supposed to do that. He's not supposed to help one side or the other. But when a flag goes down, he has to rule on the flag. And if he doesn't, we object to that too. We renew, I renew my objection, Your Honor. I'll take this up on appeal in a heartbeat if you don't go along with me here. Do not let that witness testify. Do not let that document get into the record. And But you have to be forceful. I mean, after all, we are adults. We're not children. We don't have to kowtow. And you're 100%. You nailed it on the head. Exactly. He's a referee. Let him do his job. That's what he's being paid for. So, Jason, I don't know about you, but I can't even recall the number of emails I've gotten about those who have taken Dr. Graves' course, almost to a person, well, to a person, it was positive, but almost to a person was the idea that I now feel like I can conduct myself like an adult. I mean, what's your experience? But I know Rose probably got more emails than both of us put together. Yeah, she gets the most, but uh, everyone I've interacted with has definitely been very happy with the fact that they've taken it. And they say they understand things and see things in a way that they certainly didn't before. And actually, while we're here, Dr. Graves, I noticed you noticed I hadn't logged in. It's just simply about time. I would love to be able to spend a couple weeks straight getting into this, but uh, Jason and I are just under the gun. And with what happened at the beginning of October, time is uh, the one thing we don't have. Dr. Graves, what would you like to add to the last few minutes of hour one? Our nation's in a pickle right now. Uh, I've been reading Winston Churchill, wonderful. The Power of Words, if you can get that book, it's a book that has a lot of quotations and things that Churchill wrote. What a powerful man and a wise man who wanted what was best for the people of all walks of life. A wonderful, wonderful thing. And, And he has just strengthened my resolve that if we will be decent, if we will be honorable, if we will stop just being angry and shouting and setting fire to police cars, if we will just understand that we have this wonderful, wonderful uh, mechanism, I want to call it. I'm not going to call it a system. I'll call it the mechanism, uh, this set of rules that is America. I'll say it that way. And not just the court rules, but the other rules that is America. And it's a wonderful thing. It protects people. 
but we have gotten so far away from solid education. We've gotten so far away from statesmanship. Uh, the people understanding what was almost, almost just inherent in men like Winston Churchill. I mean, he, he just seemed like he was born or maybe it was the way he was reared. Maybe it was the books that he read. And, and there, that's the problem because people aren't reading books these days. But when we begin to understand this foundational philosophy that is America, the jurisprudence, the wisdom of justice, and we begin to stand up instead of just finding fault with everything we see in sight, we actually do something like, okay, let's, let's put this fault finding into action. Let's actually do something instead of thinking, as you wisely mentioned a moment ago, as so many people sadly do, thinking, oh, I can't do this. It's too hard. No, I, I can't do it. I can't do it. Because when we don't do it, we are failing those who gave their very lives for us to have this opportunity to call witnesses, to be heard, to present our arguments before the court and say, this is what the law is. This is what the facts are. Here is the evidence. I have made my record. You better rule in my favor, or there'll be three judges that are smarter than you are on the appellate court, and they might just do what Crow said and hand you your lunch. This belongs to the American people. It was purchased at a very precious price. So as we wrap up our one, you can find Dr. Graves' work at How to Win in Court. How to Win in Court. Again, those little images of places that I have deemed useful. Uh, there's a little yellow image that you will find, and the text has Dr. Graves' name in it. Use that if you want to take his course and begin to use something. But I'll, I'll say a thing in closing. When Jason and I started covering the law ideas, there was so much infighting and backbiting, and we truly didn't know how to go forward. So I did what I always do. I began to boil it down, and I had to work out in some way, is this meaningful? Is there a reason for covering it? To this day, we get all these suggestions. Oh, cover this law person. It's not that easy. It's not that easy. You have to vet it. You have to find out that there's a there there in some meaningful way. But what I have learned is there's many roads you can go down. What Dr. Graves is laying down is one of those roads. People, you know, you know, the other people we've covered, but they may be a vastly different road. But what's being laid down here, from my point of view, is the idea that there was a system put in place that when it was put in place, there was a lot of better intention towards men and women than we currently have in our world. It still exists. We are corrupting at a rate that is almost astonishing, and we're headed for an idiocracy. The idiocracy that we're headed for is going to dumb down society to a point where probably what we've laid down about even the rules of evidence won't be comprehensible. It's clear to see it in the media. It's clear to see it in the importance that media has taken. If you go into the average high school now, you're looking at a generation that is almost 90% driven by what they can do with their phone, what they can access, who they can communicate. It's entertainment. And that was put forward in the 1980s, as far as I know, by the Committee of 300, that there were too many useful breathers and eaters in the world, and that they were going to prove it by turning us all into useless people who just cared about entertainment and vain things like the selfie. We're at a crux here, and we have to make a decision. 
Are we going to try to use the systems in place? Are we going to do something else? Are we going to drop out of the, every one of us gets to decide what we're going to do. But the reason we cover these things is because we have faith that there is still a system if used properly and effectively that worked as it ever did. It's just, you know, we've covered other things down at the municipality level. People tend to get mowed over, but once you get above the municipality, maybe some of the things we're talking about start to come back into action. Jason, is there anything you'd add before I wrap up our one? So something I've noticed uh, for years now is that there's a gatekeeping of sorts with this kind of information, and it's done through a, a social engineering aspect in the sense that people see television shows or movies that involve courts and law and all that, and they get the impression that they can't do that, that you have to be a barred lawyer. That's just not true. And that's what we're trying to uh, help dispel here. Push aside that that notion that you can't understand these things, that you can't do these things. You don't need to go to school for this. You can just do it through this course, and then you'll understand, hey, I can do this too, and I can stand for myself. All right, I'll close with an example here, and I'll say it one more time. There is a yellow image that will click to the course if you want to know something about the system and how to protect your rights. You can also find Dr. Graves at howtowinincourt.com. There's another example I can lay down here. Uh, when I was young, there was this thing called film critics, and they didn't agree. And as a matter of fact, they broke down at the end into two main groups, if I remember. There was a woman and a man who had vastly different ideas that seemed to be surrounding criticism of movies or movie critics. As of today, almost all of the older voices that were near 50 or 60 years old have been fired and young people have been hired. Do you know why? The claim is that we need these young people to reach the young audience, but the real reason or part of the real reason is the critics remember something that was much worthy, more worthy of criticism back in the day than the movies they're pumping out now that have fart humor, that have people being kicked in the balls, that have just lowbrow, just so lowbrow, the majority of it. And what's not lowbrow is created in a computer. There's no room for an actual critic to criticize what's going on now because everything would be panned and that can't be. So they've gotten rid of them. But the net result of where this is going in a world that is, I don't even know, majorly driven by entertainment is that the entertainment has gone hill. As a matter of fact, it's jumped off a cliff and people get mad about that. But let's be honest. Let's be honest about what the majority of zombie movies and post-apocalyptic America, what are they doing? What are they impressing in your head? Well, as a side effect, one of the things they're pressing into the young heads is that you couldn't hold your own in a court if your life depended on it, and clearly you can't afford a lawyer. And so hopefully what we're laying down here shows a different story. And lastly, before I close up, every single email I've seen about Dr. Graves' course has literally been, I feel a little more like a grown-up now. Anyhow, Dr. Graves, thank you so much for hour one. We're going to prep up and come back for hour two of episode 456. The first hour is free to everybody at crow777radio.com, C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. And with that, we're going to prep up for hour two, and I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. Cheers.
is the enemy of knowing. <laughs>